Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to All Options Considered. I'm Bloomberg Radio host Caroline Hepke. And I'm Tanvir Sandhu, Chief Global Derivative Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's research arm. And on this episode, we're going to be discussing the latest signals from the volatility market, the ECB decision and bond market volatility in general on what is our first episode. Later in the programme, I'll be joined by Christopher Cole, Chief Investment Officer and founder of Artemis Capital Advisors. And he's done some seminal papers in, on volatility. Tanvir, this is the first podcast that we've done of this kind. And I suppose my opening question is, why talk about volatility now? Well, we've had an extraordinary period in volatility and we are in the era of volatility now. And we've come out of a decade of low volatility where central banks have suppressed volatility given we've gone through this period of low inflation. And we've seen momentum traders chasing the upside. We've seen retail traders uh, participating in the options market during COVID. And we've seen the likes of stocks like GameStop explode. And now in, we have this inflation issue. Mm-hmm. So the central banks are in this conundrum of tackling inflation while trying to protect the market on the other hand. And their first and foremost goal and their mandate is to keep inflation their target. And do they really care about what the markets are doing or not? Do they factor that in? I mean, look, first of all, what are then the latest signals when it actually comes to the volatility market? As you say, we're at this kind of pivotal global moment, aren't we? Well, the option market isn't showing any signs of panic at the moment, Mm. despite having such a huge drawdown in the stock market year to date. There's three metrics that I look at to find, figure that out. The first one is the volatility risk premium, mm-hmm. which is the difference between implied volatility or what the market price is versus the actual volatility of the market. Now, that has moved lower recently. Secondly is the skew, the option skew, which essentially is the difference between the volatility if the market declines, Mm -hmm. so put options, versus the volatility if the market rallies and call options. Take that difference, that skew has actually collapsed and it's at one of the lowest points in the last 10 years. And what that signals is overall is that there's lower demand for protection or Mm -hmm. lower demand for hedges for a further decline in the market. And the final thing is the reactivity of the VIX index to declines in the S&P 500. So what we've seen recently is the VIX decline at the same time that the stock market is declining, which is quite unusual. So it's showing there's less stress in the options market. So look, we're going into summer. Is this like a summer lull? Why is this happening if if those specific Um, figures and and rates that you're watching so closely are not reacting and yet we know that central banks are moving quite aggressively in some parts of the world why is it that we're not seeing more action the problem with options is that when you pay a lot of premium and nothing happens or the move isn't realized you know you're losing that 
money that you're paying. So it's expensive. Um, The big question at the moment is where is the central bank put? Meaning at what point does the Fed blink? And is that from stress in the options market? If the VIX is above 50, probably not. It's going to be more about credit stress. And that's what we need to watch. Credit spreads blowing out and how that balances with the Fed trying to tackle inflation. And we've not really seen that so far. I mean, it's certainly on the radar, isn't it, in Europe? Correct. And it's definitely on the radar. And that's the risk to the market. So the market is currently undergoing a rally. This is the whole thesis behind why it's likely a bear market rally, because we'll see another round of stress uh, when the central banks keep tightening. And at some point, something will break. And that's when they blink. Mm, Okay, so we're watching for... Christine Lagarde maybe to blink and colleagues and of course we've got a very sort of important moment we've we've had quite a lot of signals from Christine Lagarde actually about what the ECB are going to do in the coming days when they come to their um, interest rate decision and other decisions what is going on with bond market volatility in Europe what are we expecting from the ECB and how does that play into volatility so the ECB has transitioned from suppressing volatility Hmm. And now they're actually a source of volatility. And the reason for that is they were talking about inflation being transitory. You know, the central banks got it wrong and they're actually injecting volatility into the market. And where where we're seeing that the most, the apex of that is on the front end bond yields because they're the most sensitive to policy rates. So we're seeing volatility on front-end yields Mm -hmm. spike above levels when uh, that was the last time the ECB actually hiked rates. So we're seeing volatility at elevated levels. Now, President Lagarde actually wrote a blog recently Mm. and set out the near-term path. So she did talk about a rate hike in July. Yes. And then uh, another one at the next meeting. And then September is where the issue starts in terms of forward guidance. Forward guidance basically went out the window when inflation spiked up. And that's what injected um, risk into the volatility markets. Mm-hmm. Now, forward guidance has, you know, has been this great thing that's compressed volatility over the years. So... From September, we don't know, and the ECB doesn't know, the path of policy rates. And it's very difficult for them to do that ex ante. They need to see data, and they will react to the data. The market has lost confidence in the ECB's ability to forecast inflation, which injects greater volatility. That, that's what we're tackling with at the minute. Okay. So within Europe then, there's always also, and there have been in in previous crises within Europe when rates have gone up or when there have been um, sort of economic stresses in Europe, it's been the kind of periphery versus the core European bond markets, again, where spreads, we've watched spreads closely or, you know, this idea that, that the ECB is making policy for so many diverse economies that are kind of loosely bound together so talk us through kind of peripheral versus core bonds in Europe now so there's been talk about the ECB coming out with a new tool Mm. to um, keep peripheral spreads under control now we're yet to see details of that there are reports 
we'll see at the um, ECB meeting uh, in June. Now, um, we, we're yet to see the power and the sort of force of that tool. Um, but for now, you know, as rates go up and people are going to be wary of the peripheral space. Uh, not Before, people love peripheral bonds for carry, but carry is conditional upon low volatility. So you buy, you know, yes. Italian bonds, you earn carry, but it's, it's purely dependent upon um, volatility remaining low. Now volatility is spiked, you know, it's, there's much more risk there. Inflation will dictate the path of policy rates and how that feeds into peripheral spreads. So then how are traders within Europe sort of reacting to what is a new era and a lot of moving parts now? I mean, certainly in the stock markets, as I say, there's often kind of a summer lull, but can traders really do that this year? Maybe not. Maybe not, but I I would say the level of volatility we're at in the bond market is unsustainable over the long term. Okay. We can't sustain volatility at such elevated levels and volatility is a mean reverting asset it doesn't trend it will eventually mean revert now the question is when does that peak come in now inflation in the euro area sticking above seven percent for the next few months you know that doesn't speak of a volatility coming down no what the vol market needs is um, more clarity on the path of policy rates now, Lagarde did provide that in her blog, only in the very near term. Beyond September, we don't know. And secondly, the inflation to peak. Now, we're not seeing second round effects of inflation in the euro area like we're seeing in the US. Yes. And the narrative may shift in the second half of the year to stagflation and growth risks. And also potentially the ECB making a policy mistake. Now, if we shift to that narrative, volatility would come down pretty quickly. So then, um, a last thought then on what you're seeing around tail risk pricing in the stock market. So tail risk is about, um, you know, large moves in the market. Mm. Now, we can look at um, what happened in during COVID. So I think the the real shift in the vol market for say the S&P 500 was this idea of tail risk pricing or convexity pricing remaining at higher levels compared to before the crisis. So what happens during vol shocks and what that does is it damages um, the psychology of vol sellers and it will wipe out some of these accounts as well. So vol sellers are slow to return to the market and people have been selling volatility for years because you know yields have been low and alpha has been low. So they go to volatility and sell vol and extract the premium. So then what happens next in terms of whether there's a normalization or not? I mean, tailor risk options should be seen as insurance policies. Mm. And that's it. They shouldn't be seen as speculative vehicles. <laughs> okay. And what, um, what can happen from here is if, even if the market declines, if it declines in such a way that it's the stop start and there's no one significant day where we see a huge decline, this tail risk pricing can actually decline because it's not being realized. It needs, it needs a big moment. And therefore, you know, that, pr- 
pricing may may sell off and go lower. But ultimately, when it comes to tail risk, it's all about um, managing drawdowns in portfolios. It's not about spec speculation. Well. Interesting. It's going to be a very, very pivotal moment with the ECB decision coming up for these markets. And we've got further conversations on the podcast. Stay tuned. Christopher Cole, Chief Investment Officer and founder of Artemis Capital Advisors, will be with us in a moment. So Christopher Cole is now with me, Chief Investment Officer and founder of Artemis Capital Advisors. Great to have you here today, Chris. Uh, it's great to be here, Tanvir. So let's just um, take a step back in terms of the vol landscape. You know, we've gone through an era of vol suppression by central banks. We saw the VIX reaching an eight handle in 2017. And we've seen more frequent vol spikes that has exposed the fragility of markets. And we've seen these vol spikes before subsequently being crushed given the low yield environment and limited alpha that environment that we've been in. And the narrative into 2020 was about central banks running out of ammunition before they unleashed this bigger bazookas when COVID came. So it'd be great to hear your thoughts on the vol landscape since 2020 and where currently you see the largest dislocations. Yeah, I think it's very interesting because I think we're talking about two very, very different regimes. Uh, the, period, the period of 2018 to 2020 marked one specific regime, um, and that was uh, uh, it really the, the buildup of that is something that Artemis is very famous for. There's a research paper that I wrote uh, in 2017 called uh, Volatility and Alchemy of Risk that it introduced this idea of the Ouroboros of risk. This was a, uh, the Ouroboros is a self-reinforcing snake. It's a snake that eats itself. This is something that occurs in nature. And uh, the reason I used that was to describe volatility. Um, at that point, there was a tremendous amount of uh, short volatility strategies that were either implicitly short ball or explicitly short ball. And the paper goes into that in more detail. Um, and what that created was a reinforcing cycle where volatility would go lower. Um, the more, the lower it went, the lower, the, the lower it would push down. And then uh, it would reinforce higher if there was the right trigger point. Um, and that was largely due to many of these institutional shortfall selling strategies, both implicit and explicit. Well, uh, that regime, which really started with the central bank, uh, the Ouroboros regime really started with central banks uh, flooding the money with cheap, uh, flooding the system with cheap money. It really ended in 2017. And in that paper, I said that VIX would reach all-time lows and all-time highs within a two-year period, and it did. In, in December of 2017, VIX went to nine. By, uh, by March of 2020, it went to all-time highs. Um, and what occurred is we had a massive unwinding of that Ouroboros of risk. The snake essentially ate its own tail to the point of its demise. Um, and that really uh, uh, started with the Volmageddon crisis um, in February of 2018 and really ended with the massive vol crisis that occurred in March of 2020. Now, most people are gonna blame the dynamic in March as driven by uh, uh, the COVID crisis. But the origin of, of March 2020 actually occurred in 2019 as central banks began to wind down uh, their stimulus programs, pullback stimulus, we began to see a rising credit spreads, interbank lending spreads. Um, that flooded into the system. COVID was the spark 
that caused a rapid sell-off um, in uh, corporate debt um, and an explosion um, in, uh, in volatility, which led to many of these, uh, uh, of these reflexive strategies blowing out. And people were hedging not to, not to protect their portfolio, they were hedging out of existential risk in March of 2020. Today, we have reset into what I would call a new vol regime. Um, and that is a little bit similar to the stagflationary crisis of the, the 1970s. And I can kind of go into that with a little bit more detail, if you'd like, and how it might differ from the way volatility has behaved in the last three years. Right. So like we've seen volatility um, in, in March 2020 actually have the biggest shock in, in recorded history. Yes. Depending yeah. on which measure we use, if we look at prevailing implied volatility. Now, typically what we see after a shock is the people selling volatility either are out the game or they're very slow to return uh, to the game of selling ball. And now we're in this new regime where basically the Fed is in a conundrum and we might be seeing market sell-offs of greater magnitude compared to previous cycles if inflation stays elevated. So going into what you're saying is, I mean, do you think ultimately we go back to the low teens index when the Fed pivots from its hawkish stance and go back to building another, you know, Minsky moment? Or do you suspect the floor in vol is higher? So this is what's very interesting. Um, what drove the super vol spike was the predominance of these implicit and explicit short vol players. That's what drove the super spike. It's not what drove the crisis, but it's what drove the super spike in vol in March of 2020. What's interesting is I don't think we're seeing the uh, I don't think we're seeing as many short volatilities come players come back into the market. You're not seeing that many individuals come back in the market uh, yet, and. This regime is very similar to kind of what happened after uh, 2008, because the long end of the vol term structure is now at about uh, 28. Um, you can look at that with uh, uh, variance swap pricing or VIX futures pricing. To put that in perspective, um, now keep in mind that's risen from the low teens, you know, pre-2020. Right. Pre so for vol to pay out at a, at a level of 28, for equity vol to pay out at a level of 28, that almost requires a, a 2% move per day. It's about a 1.7% move per day, uh, either up or down in equity markets. Now, over the last three months, we've actually been getting that, um, that type of movement. Actually, uh, re, uh, implieds are trading at a discount to realize. But the point being is that I think the, I think the driver of vol going forward today is something very, very different than the driver of equity vol um, going back in previous to March of 2020. So just uh, to get into the, just that vol pricing right there, in terms of tail risk or convexity pricing, we've seen it average at higher levels than pre-COVID, right? Yes. And, yeah. and essentially it's a function of, yeah, the microstructure of markets where liquidity evaporates while increases with the bank's uh, balance sheets no longer being offered to the market, as well as the inflation tails and the macro uncertainty. So in terms of the convexity pricing, um, you know, you need to see um, a, a decent move and realize vol to actually make money from that, right? That's right. And we actually, believe it or not, we actually saw that movement in realized vol the last couple of months, and there wasn't much of a payout. 
in, in, uh, in equity vol. Uh, and that's really fascinating. There's been a tremendous underperformance of tails the last couple months comparative to history. And I think the reason for that is because you don't have this many players uh, aggressively shorting ball. So if we go back to March of 2020, you have people who were buying ball to protect their portfolios, but you also had people buying vol because of existential risk. They were literally going out of business. They were covering positions. They, had, they were forced to buy vol. They were not buying it strategically. They were buying it because of margin calls and because of existential risk. Today, most of those players have been washed out of the market. And as a result of that, equity vols have been actually underperforming the movement of the S&P. Now, if you're someone like an RIA or an institution, you might sit back and say, ah, forget equity vol. Why do I want to pay for vol at these levels? Right. Well, the drivers of crisis are very different today. Um, and in some ways, they're potentially even more scary. And the behavior of vol is changing. So I always talk about this idea of an unholy trinity that drives volatility. There is liquidity. There is credit stress, and though that drives volatility. Those, that's the triangle. The top of the triangle is vol. The bottom legs of it are solvency, credit, credit stress, and liquidity. Right. So, so, so let, let's, let's get into the credit stress part of your triangle. So it may be that the Fed blinks when credit spreads widens to a certain threshold. And let, let's just say there's a scenario where inflation persists for longer than expectations and it remains, you know, the top priority for central banks. Where, where do you see that Fed puts in terms of credit spreads in that part of the, your triangle that you describe? And yes. also, how do you see, you know, higher borrowing costs ultimately impact the bottom line and default rates evolving? Yeah, 100%. I think that's exactly the, the thing to key on. So. If I take a step back, liquidity drives super spikes in vol, right? When you have liquidity crisis, that's what drives when people are, when you have a big liquidity crisis, that's what can drive some of these super spikes. That what we saw in February, 2018 was a liquidity crisis. What we saw right. in 1987 was a liquidity crisis. Credit solvency problem or credit risk and solvency problems drives vol persistence. It is what causes volatility to stay elevated for longer periods of time. And that's a very, very important understanding, difference in understanding about why the vol regime for the past couple of years is going to be different than the vol regime going forward. So right now, once you have sell-offs in credit, once you have sell-offs in credit, and credit spreads reset to a higher level, you set up the stage for persistently higher equity vol. If you right. look at corporate bond OAS spreads, they track the VIX in a very clear relationship. Now we have seen a widening of credit spreads this year. You know, this year credit spreads, uh, if you look at the difference between high yield, uh, high yield and investment grade OAS spreads, right. you know, that's widened about 76 basis points. But the predominant, the predominant driver of higher corporate bond yields has not been credit spreads. 
it's actually been interest rates if you decompose the two. An equity vol is going to respond to the credit spread component and not the rate component. So this is very interesting. You can have extended volatility in the 20 to 30 range if credit spreads re remain consistently higher. When credit spreads widen dramatically, setting up with the combination of lower liquidity, that's what drives super spikes in vol. And that's the risk this time, right? Because the and, Fed has to deal with higher inflation. So and, the, the, exactly. the amount they let the credit spreads widen is going to be probably to a greater extent, or the risk is there anyway. 100%. So we've seen this before. You know, people are like, why is equity vol not performing? Is it never going to perform again the way that, I mean, it, it, you have equity vol going up, but the tails aren't big. You're not getting the big movement that you would expect for an 18, 20% down movement in equity markets because people have acclimated to these rapid vol spikes. Well, there's two reasons for that. You know, well, there's a big reason for that. We have seen that in the past. We saw it in 19, or we saw it in 2007. In 2007 to 2008, we, you had two, you had a 15% drawdown in the equity markets. You had a over a close to 25% drawdown in the equity markets. This was before the Lehman crisis. And vol fluctuated between 25, between 20 and 30. You never had that extended vol movement. So what happened at that point is when you began to see solvency crises, you began to see banks going under, you began to see companies going under, and the credit spreads, the credit spreads uh, began to expand rapidly. I mean, keep in mind that although credit spreads have expanded um, this year, they're still about the historic average of the last yeah. kind of five years, right? Um, comparative to like 2008, where, you know, we're, we're in the, the difference between high yield and investment grade is, you know, uh, OAS spreads is about, um, is close to 3%, about 2.75%. That expanded out to 11% in 08. Right. Right. That is what drives vol. And when you have that expansion of credit risk combined with liquidity risk, and liquidity is terrible in markets, that is what will drive the next super spike. But the thing that people are going to miss, the thing that people are going to miss, and I think even some quantitative ball players are going to miss this, is we have gotten used to fast mean reversion in volatility. Right. Really fast mean reversion. Um, we had a super spike in 2018, another super spike in 2020, and the mean reversion was the fastest on record. That you was know? the interesting thing about these vol spikes, is the speed right. of the decline. Well, this is important idea to keep in mind because when you have a, a situation where uh, you have one of these super spikes, you know, VIX goes to 80, um, and central banks have room to respond, well, that central bank reaction function uh, results, I mean, central banks really all turned a corner in March of 2020 when uh, Powell sat back. I, I would say almost, uh, you know, my friend Daniel DiMartino Booth talks about this. He, like, it's questionable whether the legality of this. Right. They agreed to give loans to, they agreed to give loans to uh, corporations uh, through the U.S. Treasury to buy where the US Treasury would buy the debt. Effectively so, backstopping the credit markets. Backstopping the credit markets, exactly. So 
you know, to me, if you're looking at that, um, if you're looking at that, that is what changed the tide and resulted in this fast mean reversion in volatility. Well, today, you go back to 2000. So vol went to 80 and it came back below 30 in about a month and a half. Right. Keep in mind that in the 08 crisis, in the 08 crisis, uh, when volatility expanded um, above 30, it exploded above 30, it took almost a year for it to drop below 30 again. That's the difference. And today, if we go back to the Great Depression, we don't have, we can't look at implied vol, but realized vol averaged close to 40 for a decade during the Great Depression. So in a dynamic where central banks don't have the reaction function because of inflation, what happens is that you have less super spikes, but you have much greater vol persistence. Hmm. And that is a fundamental change in the vol regime that I think is really important to understand. Yeah, that's very interesting. So how, I mean, we've seen year to date, the S&P realized vol spike above 30. And that's had the impact of we, uh, funds that use vol as an input reduce their exposure. And that's kind of linking to what you're talking about there, right? So how do you see this going? Well, to that same, to that same point, it also creates higher vol persistence, but less super spikes. Because when you, and that's another, that goes back to the Ouroboros of risk. When you have a lot of reflexive strategies that rely as vol, use, use vol as an input, like risk parity, um, like, you know, short vol, some sort vol strategies, what will occur to some degree is that when there's a super spike, they have to pare down their exposure very quickly. In a prolonged period of uh, higher vol persistence, these firms have a greater ability to just um, reduce risk exposure gradually. And you have a much slower grinding lower crisis um, with uh, more vol persistence, but less super spikes. You just have this dynamic of persistently higher volatility um, on a realized basis without any of these massive dynamic unwinds. Um, Now, in many ways, another way of looking at that is that volatility is being transmuted through different asset classes. If you have rapid inflation, what that is doing is it's in essence depressing nominal volatility as expressed through equity prices and replacing that volatility in things like uh, commodities, uh, gold and currencies. So you might sit back and say there was not that impressive level of equity volatility in the 1970s, but there was huge volatility in gold, huge volatility in commodities. Right. And that's what we're seeing today. We're seeing underperformance of equity vol and tremendous outperformance in uh, the volatility of these other asset classes. The question at the end of the day is that should you, if you're an institution or an or a, a individual, should you throw up your hands and not hedge your portfolio? My answer would be no, because there is a big driver that could cause a massive crisis in equity vol. There's right. a huge trigger. And that trigger is specifically corporate debt. And we did not have that trigger in the 1970s. If you go back and look at corporate debt to GDP, it was pretty much under control in the 1970s. You did not have high corporate debt to GDP levels. Today, we have the highest corporate debt to GDP, 
Well, it's come off of its highs, but it was the highest corporate debt to GDP in American history. Right. It was close to 50%. Here's what people don't quite realize. That's not a problem because interest coverage ratios are pretty low. Mm. Um, corporations can pay that debt because they've refied that debt at really low levels. But when you reach a point where corporations have to refi that debt, they're not going to be able to refi that debt, tremendous load of debt at the levels that they could years ago. They have to refi that, or you know, even in the last you know, one year ago, they're going to have to refi that debt at massively higher levels. So if, if corporate yields average where they were in 07, the period of just 06, 07, you can wipe off. And if, if, that, if they average that into a period of debt rolls, you can wipe off just mathematically 30 to 50% off corporate earnings simply to increased debt service. If we go back to 1970s levels of yields, of corporate bond yields over that decade, you can wipe off 100% of S&P earnings to interest service alone. And as my, my, my friend Mike Green talks about, he's like, Chris, that's very optimistic because, <laughs> it, ass- <laughs> because it assumes those companies are even able to refi and many right. of them won't. So if you look at the rising corporate bond yields this year, the, the majority of that increase is in rates, not in credit spreads. So if I'm looking at the next Minsky moment that could drive a super spike in vol, it is, we, we have set ourselves up for a situation that's very similar to the arms, the mortgage arms that were experienced pre-2008. You know, if we remember correctly, you know, back then you had these consumers that had these ultra low interest rates on their, on their, housing, on their housing positions and then those rates reset in 06, 07, and they couldn't pay the reset rate. We have replicated that same exposure with corporate bonds. You talked about the central bank. Where's the central bank put this time? It's not in equities. It's in credit spreads. That's where they're going to act. They're gonna, they're, they act when there's credit spread stress. That's, that's what happened in March of 2020. People get it wrong. It's not 20% down in equity markets. It's not 50% down in equity markets. It's credit. when you see credit spreads expand rapidly um, you know, to two, three, five standard deviations comparative to where they've been historically to the point that those companies are not able to refi their debt or stay solvent. This is what drives your next deflationary crisis. In the past, um, commodity trend advisors went through a decade of tremendous underperformance. Um, you know, we had friends. We had friends that, in some instances, were down you know thirty percent in their CTAs, and they've had a roaring comeback. So, right. you know, starting in two thousand seventeen, people were dumping their CTAs. Now people are loading up on CTA exposure. Well, you know, everyone wanted vol after March of two thousand twenty and after after uh, two thousand eight. And that it underperformed. It's arguably equity vols are arguably underperforming recently, um, comparative to expectations. People say, "Why do I need this?" And then you get the deflationary spike um, yeah. driven by corporate bond yields. This is what I sit back and I say: Don't panic. Don't predict. Prepare. Diversification right. should come based on thematic regimes. You should have asset classes that perform in secular growth, like equities. You should have asset classes that perform during periods of abusive government, like like gold and fiat alternatives. 
You should have asset classes that perform during stagflationary periods, uh, like commodity trend advisors, and you should have asset classes that perform best in deflationary periods, like equity vol. And if you diversify not based on asset class, uh, but based on thematic regimes and the assets that perform in those thematic regimes, you don't have to predict what regime will come next. All you have to do is hold that portfolio and survive. And that was the basis uh, of our dragon portfolio concept, which is on our website, that you know, has test, really is the portfolio that's done best over 100 years, if people look at that. Um, what people do is they always look in the rearview mirror, they dump the thing that's been underperforming, they load up on the thing that's been outperforming, um, rather than looking at this, or they sit back and they say to themselves, um, boy, you know, private equity is a diversifier because it reports returns quarterly, um, which I think is comical, but I hear a lot among a, different, a lot of different institutions. I'm, I'm sorry, right. you, know, you know, just because that, that reports quarterly doesn't mean it diversifies you in the way that a CTA or a long ball fund would. Um, so I, you know, to me, this is how portfolio construction should work. We have a lot of tools on our website that help with that concept um, that, take, that take ideas from uh, sports. We have this idea of C-Warp that, that shows you how to construct a portfolio this way. But, you know, it's that mantra, don't panic, don't predict, prepare. And right. to do it in a way that is diversifying by thematic exposures across regimes and not just by asset classes, which are ultimately sort of irrelevant. Let's finish on fragility in the market. Do you see the fragility in the market actually increasing over time and we remain stuck in this cycle? Absolutely. I have a massive fear about the fragility of the market. And to be frank with you about the fragility inherent in politics in the country. But let me, let me start with what, about the market. Um, first reason, as we've talked about, highest uh, debt levels in history um, and the ability for corporate credit stress to uh, rapidly cause a deflationary sucker punch. That The credit stress is a big concern because if these corporations have to reset their bond yields into these higher interest rates, you have a driver of deflation. The second reason, liquidity. Market liquidity is deteriorating and some of the worst it's been in my entire career. I, I think any, any serious asset manager will tell you the same. Um, as we know, credit stress, credit stress combined with liquidity represents the unholy trinity that drives volatility. And central banks have their hands tied in a big right. way. The biggest reason they have and the biggest fear of mine is about the, the soul of the country to some degree, because you have income disparity at the highest levels ever. And we're rapidly funneling this uh, market crisis into a period of, uh, of that inequality. And it, we're at a point where people you know, may, as stimulus runs out, may have trouble uh, 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 being able to take care of themselves. And that produces an entirely different type of stress that is outside of markets, but could feed back into markets. Um, so yes, uh, I think these are, these are tremendous reasons, uh, but at least from a market standpoint, um, you know, don't panic, don't predict, prepare, as we've right. talked about. And from a, uh, from a political country standpoint and war standpoint, uh, fourth turning standpoint, well, I can't help you there. <laughs> so you got to figure <laughs> that one out. <laughs> well, Excellent, Christopher. Thanks for um, joining us today. We really appreciate it. And uh, we should definitely do this again sometime in a few months. Fantastic. I had a great time, Tendier. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this edition of All Options Considered.
I hope you'll join me, Tanvir Sandhu, and Bloomberg Radio's host, Caroline Hepker, again. Bloomberg Intelligence is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg Intelligence should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed.